Well, hey, everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online from the cottage or wherever you happen to be. Honored to have you along for the ride. We're in week two of a series that we've called Because You're Loved. Uh, And the series, I mentioned this last week, but it's all about an invitation to rethink your entire approach to religion because of the love that God has demonstrated for you in Jesus. And, and it's the same invitation that an early Jesus follower named John wrote about when he wrote what has become the most famous verse in the entire Bible. And if you've ever been in church before or you've been to a football game and watched the end zone, you have seen this verse, right? For God so loved the world, he wasn't angry at the world, he loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I mean, in this simple, powerful, revolutionary verse, John essentially affirms that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God that created all of us, the one true God, is not fundamentally angry with people. He loves us. And uh, through Jesus, he desires to be reconciled to us. And I'm telling you, I mean, we, we sometimes we get so familiar with this message, we miss the impact. But when this message went out into the ancient world, It disrupted pretty much everything anyone had ever thought about God. And in this series, what we're doing is we're going to explore what the implications of that mean for the way we approach God. Like not just for people back then, but for people like us here and now. You'll soon see when it comes to your approach to religion, it's no exaggeration to say that everything can change because you're loved. And so that said, with our time together today, um, we get to talk about something that religions, ancient and modern, talk a lot about. Uh, I want to talk to you about fear. And I'll begin by making an observation with which I think we can all agree, uh, namely that wherever you find yourself on the spectrum of faith, uh, fear is something you wish you had less of, right? Real fear or imagined fear, I want less fear. Um, and if you think about it, fear is, is not healthy for us at all. It can rob us of opportunities. It can impact relationships with, you know, in our marriages and with our kids and at work. And, and it can keep us up at night. It's, it, it's a real problem. And I did a bunch of, of study about fear this week. It was really exciting around my office. I don't know how you were, right? Yeah. But I, I learned something that I just thought was really interesting enough that I wanted to share it with you. Um, anyway, uh, the, the principle that I uncovered goes like this. If you think about it, fear is a byproduct of our ability to imagine. It's, an, it's a byproduct. Because we can imagine, we have the opportunity to fear. And honestly, the ability to imagine is one of the greatest gifts that God gave people. The ability to sort of leverage the knowledge gained by our past experiences as well as the experiences of other people to imagine what might happen in the future. That's what gives us the opportunity to hope and to dream And so honestly, I don't think any of us would be willing to give that up if that's what it took in order to completely conquer our fears. Our ability to imagine has way more upside than downside. Nonetheless, we've already agreed that fear is a big problem. And that said, it should fascinate us that the authors of those accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, recorded that Jesus who came among us to show us what God is like, to reveal his Father to us, he actually commanded his first followers not to fear 59 times. I counted. No, I didn't count. I Googled it. Right. But if you think about it, that's pretty amazing, even though it doesn't seem possible. I mean, I was thinking about this too. I don't really feel like I choose to fear. 
I think it chooses me. Anyone with me on this? Yeah, and here's the thing. Um, again, I'm not the only one. Most of us here have yet to have the experience of getting up in the morning, looking at ourselves in the mirror, and thinking, huh, I wonder what I should choose to fear today, right? Nonetheless, by the time we walk out the door, fears often rise. And so what is Jesus thinking when he commanded his first followers not to fear? Like, is he aware of something that most of us miss? I mean, is it possible that because we're loved, there's actually an antidote to fear. And, and well, this won't surprise you because I chose to talk about it. I'm convinced that there is. And with the rest of our time today, I want to explore three scenes from the life of Jesus that reveal such an antidote. And so without further ado, let's just jump in to the first scene. So in the first scene I want to show you, Jesus had called his disciples together for a really confusing conversation. It was kind of a locker room pep talk, but it sort of went sideways, and I'll show you what I mean. Um, at this point, uh, they had spent time with Jesus, those first 12 guys. They had watched Jesus. They had heard him teach. They had watched him perform miracles, and in this conversation, Jesus calls his team together, and he says, listen, guys, the moment has arrived for us to take this message further faster. A lot of people need to know what I'm here for, and so what he, what he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you out two by two, and you're going to do what I've been doing. And they're probably thinking, wow, that's great. I wish I had been keeping better notes when he was talking, but hey, that sounds good. If he thinks we can do it, we can do it. Good. Um, and that sounded good enough to them until he said this. He said, well, I'm actually going to send you out, but you're kind of going to be like, um, hate to tell you, sheep among wolves, right? And to us, Sheep among wolves, that's like a figure of speech. But to them, in the first century, I'm telling you, these guys would have actually observed what can happen when sheep got among wolves. They knew that typically all that's left, sheep hoofs, sheep fur. That's it, right? The wolves win every time. Nonetheless, Jesus says to his guys, I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. And then he said, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Like I said, terrible locker room pep talk here, right? I mean, I think the guys would have thought the same thing that you or I would think, something like, um, are you kidding me? I mean, Jesus, that doesn't even make any sense. Pretty much all of our fears have to do with somehow losing our lives. And by the way, what do you mean by cannot kill the soul? Um, but anyway, before they can verbalize any of these questions, Jesus looks at them, and he actually seems to change the topic. Like Peter's like slowly raising his hand in the back, and Jesus says, well, um, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? They're like, why is he doing this again? He says, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. In other words, he's like, guys, listen, here's something to think about. Even those sparrows are practically worthless. And they're kind of like, can we come back to losing the soul thing? No, keep going. Okay. He says, God still takes care of them. Moreover, he says, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. In other words, your heavenly father cares about birds and he cares about you. Therefore, and he comes back around, don't be afraid. And then I love this line, you are worth more than many sparrows. <laughs> it's a very strange way to encourage somebody, isn't it? Like, son, I love you. And remember, you're worth more to me than many sparrows. Maybe even a few chickens. Anyway, um, just to be clear, in this conversation, if you think about it, Jesus didn't tell his disciples that there was nothing to fear. Instead, he told them, and this is huge, you don't have to fear even when there is something to fear. Because, based on what he just said, he's like, you need to understand your heavenly father loves you, and he cares for you, and he's the one who's ultimately in control of the outcomes in your life anyway. Whether you acknowledge that or not, he says, you really can 
trust him. And so like the scene fades, or the you know, scene fades out on that first thing I want to show you. And as I imagine the disciples sitting around and, and talking about what they had just experienced, they would have said something, we know that was really inspiring what Jesus said, but I don't think I'm convinced yet. You guys, right? I mean, Jesus telling us not to fear doesn't really do much to alleviate our fears. And, and here's the thing. Jesus knew that too because he's Jesus. And so Jesus decided to revisit this topic fairly often with his disciples. And as best I can timeline it, the next time he brings it up, well, he takes them on a field trip. Um, and if you spent much time in church, you're very familiar with this particular field trip, even though you probably never thought about it as a field trip, but I think Jesus thought about it as a field trip, and it was a field trip with a specific goal. He wanted to give them a powerful lesson, again, on fear. So here's the setup. Uh, in his account of the life of Jesus, a man named Matthew recorded that one day Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and rode out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And this would have been something that was fairly common. They were from the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, spent a lot of their time on the lake. But anyway, this particular time, they're out in the middle, and Matthew tells us that suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. And Matthew wants us to understand a couple things. One, this storm was unexpected, and two, this storm was significant. And what's interesting about the Sea of Galilee is that this sort of thing happens fairly often. I mean, today we've got meteorologists who will warn us, but back in ancient times, I mean, from their perspective, it came out of nowhere. In fact, a few years back, I was caught in an unexpected storm on the Sea of Galilee myself during a trip with a bunch of seminary students. If you ever want people to pray during a storm, Bring seminary students. It worked out great, yeah. But it got pretty bad, and eventually I got disturbed enough that I sort of walked back and talked to the boat driver, who's kind of like, you know, in that scene of Gilligan's Island where everybody's kind of going back and forth. Yeah, just to see, is he concerned? And uh, he awkwardly smiled. I'll never forget this. He gave me a thumbs up, and he said, good, like Jesus. <laughs> but I'm telling you, he did not look good. He looked green, okay? And we were in a boat that was much larger than the boats in the first century. In fact, we had just left the spot where we had visited a first century boat. Here's a picture. And it's hard to get scale, right? I mean, it would have had more to it than that, right? But it's roughly 24 feet long and 7 feet wide. In other words, it is not huge, and what happens on the Sea of Galilee, meteorologists today understand that it's the geography around the Sea of Galilee that causes these unexpected storms. Cool winds blow off the hills in the Golan Heights, which are along the eastern shore of the lake. And as the cold air sinks rapidly down into the sea, because cold air falls, it displaces warm air and can cause sudden storms. And I'm telling you, whenever that happens, it can be terrifying, even today. And so in the first century, these disciples were terrified. They probably couldn't see land in either direction. And their hair would have been wet, soaked, and sticking to their faces. And it would have been loud, like really loud. you got to imagine the storm is raging and the wind would have been deafening. And so you're probably wondering, if you're paying attention, like Jesus and the disciples get into the boat. They get out in the middle. There's a storm. The disciples are freaking out. Where's Jesus? Well, Matthew tells us, look at this. Jesus, love it, was sleeping. Yeah. And I, I mean, this is almost impossible. Like, I'm all but convinced he was faking. I can't prove it to you, right? But how do you sleep through a storm like that? 
Anyway, Matthew wrote, the disciples, because they're smart, they went and woke Jesus saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And he replied, as he wipes the sleep out of his eyes, right, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And I love Jesus' question here. Because I imagine Peter, who's the oldest and most impulsive disciple, the guy who's always getting in trouble and asking questions and stretching things, right? Peter's probably thinking, dude, what do you mean? Why are we afraid? Are you paying attention? Furious storm, waves coming over the bow, real potential for drowning. I grew up on this lake. I've lost friends on this lake. So Jesus, please do something. And Matthew recorded that in this moment, Jesus did. In fact, he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed. I bet they were, right? Can you put yourself in their shoes? And Jesus is like, peace be still. And then the whole weather goes, and you're like, whoa, right? Now, it's critical for us to remember that the purpose of this field trip wasn't for Jesus to demonstrate his power over nature. That's cool, but it's not the point of this trip. This has to do with teaching his disciples about fear. He wants them to understand. And I'm telling you, this is easy to conceive. If you can live this, this changes everything. He wants them to understand that he didn't panic in the middle of the storm because God doesn't panic in the middle of storms. He didn't panic in the storm. He's reflecting the heart of his father. His father doesn't panic in the storms. Isn't that good to know? Because we panic. We panic in the middle of relational storms and financial storms and vocational storms. We get some test results from a doctor. We panic. I panic, right? And we panic because we project into the future based on what we know and what we've seen and what we've experienced And so we project worst case scenarios and we panic. But Jesus is clear. God, your heavenly father, doesn't panic like ever. And we can look to him in our storms and we can access peace in our storms. Not even when they're they're gone, but just in the middle of the storms. That's what Jesus wanted to teach them. And I would suggest that perhaps this is something that Jesus wants to teach you and he wants to teach me. Because I think it really does change everything in the way we experience this broken and beautiful world. And so you get back in the boat with them, and it's so powerful. Jesus spoke to the storm. The storm stopped, and the men in the boat were amazed. And then they look at each other, and they ask a really important question. They said, what kind of man is this? Like, even the wind and waves obey him. In other words, who is Jesus? Like, Yeah, he's a teacher, he's a rabbi, he's a miracle. But, I mean, we've just crossed into uncharted territory. Who is he? And I'm telling you, for those first disciples, for just a moment standing there in the boat, their confidence in what Jesus was capable of completely overwhelmed their fear just for a moment. They understood they didn't have to allow fear to become the centerpiece of their lives because there really is someone more capable and more powerful than their fear. And he loves them. And he knows what's going on in their lives. And he cares for them. And I'm telling you, 
for any of us who are navigating situations in life that leave us feeling overwhelmed, that leave us feeling afraid, the knowledge that God knows and he cares and he loves really has the potential to change our experience in the middle of a storm, even if our storm doesn't quickly subside. Like we look to him in the storm with the knowledge that even though it doesn't feel like it all the time, he's got us. And he holds us. And he loves us. Anyway, that that day in the boat, I really do believe that those disciples started to get it. But they didn't really get it. And again, Jesus knew this. This is a tough lesson for all of us. And so like any good teacher, after some time had passed, some more teaching, some more miracles, Jesus gave them another lesson on fear. And just so they didn't miss the connection, the lesson occurred once again, you're going to love this, on the Sea of Galilee. Okay? And Matthew set it up for us this way. He wrote, immediately, in other words, they've just done some things along the shore. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat, notice that, and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And do you know why Jesus had to make the disciples get into the boat? Right. They all remember what happened the last time they went out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And I think that they suspected what Jesus was up to. They were probably like, nope not getting into the boat. We're smarter than that. I mean, I know you're Jesus. Not going to happen. Listen, we get it. We're not going to fear, even when there's something to be afraid of, but we're also not getting on to that boat. That's wisdom. It's in Proverbs in the Old Testament, right? Yes. Didn't go well last time. No reason to get in the boat. Not getting into the boat. And as I imagined, like their resolve only strengthened when Jesus was like, I want you to get into the boat. I'm going to go pray. And they're like, so now we're out in a boat, and you're not with us. Remember last time you were sleeping? Maybe you were sleeping. Maybe you were testing. Get up, calm, good. What happens if there's another storm, right? I mean, the iPhone is not tracking for like thousands of years. We don't know if a storm is coming. And so like, you're not coming with us. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going with you, but I need you to get in the boat. And he did his Jedi mind trick. You will get in the boat. We will get in the boat. They got in the boat, right? He pushes them off. And then Matthew again records that Jesus went up on a mountainside to pray. And then... He told us this. He said, later that night, Jesus was there alone, like on the mountain. And I've been on this mountain. You can kind of see the Galilee. So I I would imagine Jesus is watching the disciples from on high. Maybe not. but And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land. But check this out. Buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. In other words, the sun went down. And the next thing you know, hours have gone by. And the disciples are stuck in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, rowing against the wind. They were rowing against the wind. (laughs) In fact, they were young, and they were strong, and they were rowing against the wind. And if you're under 40, you're like, I have no idea why that's funny. (laughs) Let me explain it to you. Bob Seger, a legend, okay? Plus, he's from Michigan. And actually, this week, I was working out at MVP, and I was test driving this joke. And the guy was, te- this is, I know, we do this sometimes. And the guy at the gym goes, oh, dude, my mom discovered Bob Seger. That just took the story to a whole new place, didn't it? Yeah, anyway, after a few hours of rowing, the disciples would have been absolutely exhausted and very frustrated. At, I mean, they would have been like, Jesus, why aren't you doing something? So they're exhausted and they're frustrated until, and check this out, Matthew tells us, shortly before dawn, 
Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake like you do, right? And if you're here this morning and you're a super analytical nerdy type like me, right, you have a question here, don't you? Because you're kicking the tires on faith. You see these life principles, if I could live without fear, that's great. But you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure how any rational person can believe that Jesus actually walked on the water. So if that's what you're thinking, I just want to talk to you for just a second. You should know that Christians don't actually believe that Jesus walked on the water because the Bible tells us that he walked on the water. It's way better than that. We believe that Jesus walked on the water because a man named Matthew, who was there that day in the boat, recorded that he did. And, and just a little more thought that's kind of compelling, at least to me. Not only did he record that, that it happened, he also recorded the incredibly embarrassing response of himself and the other disciples to what happened. And I'm telling you, if you're a skeptic, that should give you pause. Because in the ancient world, much like today, it is profoundly unusual to record a story, someone to record a story in which they looked bad. Especially a story that they knew was going to circulate. And in the case of Matthew, that's exactly what he did. He told us that when confronted with the sight of someone walking on the water, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in, and there's our word again, fear. And Jesus responded, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. In other words, guys, don't look at your situation. I know it's dark. I know it's stormy. I know you're frustrated. I know you can't see the way forward. I want you to look to me in your situation, and I want you to trust me. And this is where this does connect for you and me. Like Jesus would say to them, I wasn't with you physically, but I was still watching you. And I would argue today, we would say, well, I just, I wish I had that sense that God, you know, God isn't physically, but God is watching you. He's got you, even in the middle of whatever your storm. And now I find it fascinating um, that, you know, the disciples' response to Jesus here really is interesting because, check this out. This is just so easy to miss. It's so cool. Those who were in the boat, look at this, worshiped him. And I remember the first time I noticed that, I like underlined it in my Bible, which I don't typically do because it's God's word and we don't underline it. Just kidding, you can underline it. But I underlined it, right? And I thought, that's really strange. Why is that strange? Well, if you consider the culture of that region surrounding the Sea of Galilee in the first century, that's really, really a strange thing that they did. Because as best we can tell, Jesus' first disciples were teenage Jewish boys, Peter may have been in his early 20s, who had been raised in an area known for its radical commitment to know the Old Testament text, and to live lives that honored God. It's kind of like the first century Bible Belt thing, right? So that said, Jesus' first disciples as good Jewish boys would have been taught from as early as they could understand that Jewish people were called to worship God alone. You shall have no other gods before me. And you worship God alone. So, so that, this, this, of course, raises all kinds of questions about what happened that day in the boat. I mean, why did these Jewish teenage boys start to worship Jesus? And as it turns out, after a bunch of digging, I think I actually figured out what's going on here. There's an answer to that question, and it's found in the Old Testament account of the life of a man named Job. If you want to read it later, it's, you'll see Job, not Job, Job, spelled the same. Anyway, midway through 
that account, Job says the following about God. He says, God shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. Like He's celebrating who God is and what he can do. He says he seals off the light of the stars. He, he alone stretches out the heavens. And he alone, look at this, treads on the waves of the sea. Right. I thought that was cool. Anyway, so, so in the middle of Job, and you know, consequently in the minds and hearts of these first disciples, God alone walks on the water. And so that day when Jesus walked on the waves of the sea, his disciples would have been speechless. They, they would have understood that somehow, some way, they were in the presence of a man who was way more than a man. They were in the presence of the divine. And apparently, God wanted them to know that there was no need to fear because again, he loved them and he cared about them and he knew what was going on in their lives even when things weren't going well in their lives. So that's lesson three. And actually, I have one more I want to drop in. But there's, I want to show you kind of what happens after that moment um, because honestly, I find this endlessly encouraging when it comes to my own journey with fear. Because even after this moment, even after this moment of worship and they're overwhelmed and they had that moment of clarity, even after this miracle, the disciples still continued to struggle with fear. Like right up to the end of Jesus' life. In fact, on the night before Jesus was crucified, the accounts of his life record that Jesus was arrested and that when Jesus was arrested, his disciples did not stand by their man. Thank you, Timmy, why not? Right? Yeah. They panicked and they lied and they denied and they ran. They were terrified that what had just happened to Jesus would happen to them too. And so they retreated into a room somewhere in the city of Jerusalem where they hid without a plan moving forward. And I'm telling you, for a couple of days, fear absolutely consumed their hearts and their minds. As I imagine it, they weren't eating, they weren't sleeping. And it was like that right up to the minute where the resurrected Jesus greeted them and invited them once again not to fear. The accounts of his life say that they're hiding in this room. Jesus appeared among them, and the first words out of his mouth once again, do not be afraid. And this time, based on what happened in their lives moving forward from this moment, they got it. In other words, for Jesus' first disciples, the resurrection changed everything. It really did. I mean, for many of us, we think, you know, resurrection, that's like Easter Sunday, you know, dresses and ham, a traditional Jewish feast, right? Yeah, yeah. But for them, the resurrection, it wasn't just about, it was about everything. It was the source of their confidence and their boldness and their strength. I mean, they saw Jesus' resurrection as the validation for everything else he had taught them, especially what he taught them about fear. And to be fair, the world continued to be a very scary place for Jesus' first disciples. I mean, the Roman Empire was very nervous about them. The Jewish religious establishment, very nervous about them. It was a dangerous place. But I'm telling you, post-resurrection, they finally understood that they didn't need to fear even when there was something to fear because, again, God was with them and God loved them. And they believed this so thoroughly that within a few weeks of the resurrection, the same guys who had gone into hiding... 
hit the streets of Jerusalem, came face to face with the same guys who had Jesus crucified in order to challenge them to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's within a few weeks. And then within a few years, they left everything they had ever known and boldly began to take the message of Jesus to the Roman world. And I'm telling you, the only reasonable explanation for that is that those first Jesus followers completely lost their fear of death because their teacher had come back from the dead. And as it turns out, it is very difficult to threaten people who don't fear death. In fact, a little over 100 years after the resurrection, there was a Roman medical writer named Galenius who commented on the peaceful disposition of Christians who were being forced to enter Roman arenas and essentially fed to animals for the purpose of entertainment. Here's what he wrote. Fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. Fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something that we witness in them every day. I'm telling you, these early Christians, they were absolutely convinced that Jesus had conquered death. And apparently when you follow someone who you're convinced had conquered death and who had instructed you not to fear because you're loved by him, apparently it's possible to get there. It's possible not to fear. Not because there's nothing to fear, but because you know you're loved and you've fastened your trust into someone who is worthy of your trust. All that to say for you and me, fear is an undeniable part of the human experience. It's not good, it just is. And, and let's be honest, there are a lot of very unhelpful ways people have come up with to cope with fear. But I'm telling you, historically speaking, the best coping mechanism ever conceived is the one that was articulated so clearly in a letter written by one of Jesus' first disciples, a man named Peter. In a letter to early Christians, and I love this, he wrote simply this. Cast all your anxiety, all your fear on Jesus. Why? Because he cares for you. In other words, Peter writes to these early Christians, listen, trade your fear in life for trust in Jesus. Because he loves you. All right, we'll pick it up there next week. Uh, but for today, if you're here in the room, I'd love you to stand. And I'll close our time in prayer. Um, also, once again this week, if you've come into this place and, and just you need someone to pray with you or maybe something in the message stirred something in you and you just want to talk to someone, I'd love to invite you to meet some friends under the screen to the left after I dismiss us. Uh, but for the rest of us, let me close our time in prayer. Father, this world can be a dark and scary place. And I thank you that one of the primary messages of your son was that we need not fear because we are loved. We thank you for his example. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. And we thank you for the courage of those first followers who understood that you had them. And because you had them, there was no need to fear even when there was something to fear. May we be people who look to the resurrection 
as a confidence that you have us as well. Give us fear, give us, give us peace when fears rise. And we will give you the glory. We pray in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week. Thank you.